0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and
1: CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Andrew Gillum burst on the national political scene in 2018 as a surprise nominee for governor of Florida. The young Tallahassee mayor came within four-tenths of a point of getting elected governor of one of America's most populous and most dynamic states. He is now a commentator for CNN and is working on a voter registration program in Florida to try and improve Democratic turnout there in 2020, but clearly someone who will be a force on the American political scene for years to come. I sat down with him the day after Super Tuesday yesterday to talk over the results, to talk about his career, to talk about Florida, and what it might take for Democrats to win that state in 2020. Here's that conversation. Andrew Gillum, what a pleasure to see you. The day after Super Tuesday. The day after the reckoning, man. This is a new day. Yeah. We were just talking before we uh, started rolling about – I've been around this business a long time. I've never seen a day quite like – or really four days. A couple of days. That's like, right. Yeah. So tell mm-hmm. me I, – I, I want to get to your story, which sure. is a, a, an amazing story and uh, bears telling and retelling because it is this day. I think let's start. Let's yeah. start with the news of the day. Mm. Tell me what happened. <laughs> Tell me from your perspective, what happened over the last four days yeah. that, that, that that's transformed this presidential. Record. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know what? If 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 I could be honest, I would back it up just a few more days. Yeah. And it would be. And you could you know, we could be honest here. There were a lot of status quo sort of mainstream donors, Democrats, activists, party insiders who were very nervous about um, Joe Biden, whether or not he was whether or not he would meet the moment or the moment would meet him uh, in the course of this primary race. And that's what we saw sort of the, the, you know, out of nowhere, Bloomberg. Hiring two thousand staff, fanning out all across the country, spending tons of of, of millions, and really he did
1: that because he had doubts about Biden at that time. Of Biden looked like his campaign was flagging, and and he wasn't the, thought he, he might be here to pick up the pieces. That's right, after and the he first wasn't the four only countries.
0: one. I always thought that he was positioning himself to be the just in case, in case of emergency break glass. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of scenario with with Biden and then that debate happened. It's pretty expensive glass It, that, it that is. That was stupid well, glass. Right it is there. on the whole, 54, <laughs> $55 billion, uh he'll be a right. um, <laughs> no tag uh, days. Yeah. But 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 that debate happened and in a course of two hours, Elizabeth Warren did the heavy lifting and just I yeah. mean, shredded that campaign yeah, down to. That
1: will live in, uh, debate, Lord. Look, it was, so Mike, let's, let's just stipulate, Mike Bloomberg is a very formidable person. For sure. He has, uh, remarkable accomplishments in, in public life, in private life, uh, you know, in, in, in his philanthropy. What he isn't is a very good performer on mm-hmm. the stump. That's never been his strength. And then you drop him in At the very... with a <laughs> bunch of candidates who are mid-season That's form, right. That's right. hungry. That's right. He's now made some progress with his TV ads and looks like he could be a threat. And he was just walking into it. And Elizabeth uh, uh, Warren uh, yeah. just eviscerated she him. She
0: totally did. She totally did. And and I saw, I mean, you could see the life coming out of the energy. In my state, I'm in Florida at that time, Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden had now fallen behind, and what the publicly available polls were in the state of Florida, Bloomberg had really, uh, you know, sort of surged up there, and so that happened, and people started to take other looks and other glances at this thing, and they saw the rise of Sanders happening. Yeah, because and you said your donors, the
1: donor class, others were nervous about Biden, but more nervous about in, about Bernie Sanders for
0: sure they they were they, many of them concluded that Biden was the horse that we could ride until it appeared that maybe he's not the horse that, that could the be lame ridden horse, right yeah. so another another choice needed to come in there so now fast forward that for um the vice president one to have an extremely impressive town hall meeting uh the one that CNN hosted Where he effectuated so well, communicated so well, it—it was the best of Joe Biden's qualities on display.
1: Yeah, I so I so agree with you. You know, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. His prodigious strength. Oh yeah. Empathy, decency, humanity, and it was all on display when that man whose whose wife got uh, murdered at Mother Mother Emanuel. Uh, stood up and and Biden spoke to his pain. Yep. And it carried through, Andrew, uh, to the night of the primary. His speech that night was just radiating with those same qualities. the The, the, The question on Biden is why he can't live there.
0: That's, see, that's the nervous part, right? I mean, I mean, that's what the unfortunate part is. Well, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but we still have so much longer to go in this process. Um, the part of, you know, the part of primaries you can appreciate is that there's a sessing out, a pushing, a squeezing, yes. you know, yeah. that happens no, it's in the process. It is a gauntlet. Yep. It's absolutely. Gauntlet. And by the time you, you, you get through it. Most people are like, okay, the right thing happened, you know, and, and so my only nervousness here is, well, twofold. One... Uh, I don't want to see us revisit what we did in 2016, where the sides had gotten so hardened. Um, um, I do see Biden making already different moves than were made in 2016. His language has, you know, begun to broaden out and become more inclusive, welcoming folks into the fold. Again, speaking with the royal we of, uh, yeah, of where we as a country can go. That, and that, I think that's that, a good yeah, move.
1: That's really important. You know, um, when I was working for Barack Obama, we had, our tagline was, uh, yes, we can. Right. And, and that message was, this isn't about him. That's it's right. about us. And, and I think that gives people a sense of enlistment in a cause and not just the They're elevation a, of a right. person. Uh, sometimes Biden does devolve into talking about himself. Bernie Sanders never does never talks
0: about himself never does he he does not feel comfortable in that space he can listen to people who are literally pouring their eyes out about a healthcare emergency they may have had and unlike what most politicians would do which was to go up into a moat and to touch he Find some way to take that story and project it back out into a systems problem. This is what the structure is designed to do. And you're not alone, which is why we must dismantle that structure as it exists.
1: But it is a it is an interesting dichotomy because uh, Bernie Sanders has great passion for the people. Yes. Joe Biden has great passion for people. Period. And that is a, there is a distinction there. There is, because Joe Biden
0: walking through an airport would probably uh, stop, shake everybody's hand, uh, run very late to whatever the next event is because he enjoys that part of it. Bernie Sanders is likely to walk very quickly through an airport, you know, sort of waving off, not because he has a disdain for folks, but that's not the part of, the work that he most enjoys. This is clearly a man who enjoys the sort of structural fights, structural changes. And he can do that. It's kind of magical to me and and and, and not how I am and, and and probably not how I would inspire to be, but he is able to do that without the singular individual in mind. Yeah. It is it is it is everybody. It's justice for everyone. And I think that does, however, create some blind spots for him. Um That, you know, the message always goes back to this sort of the universal threat of of the economy, capitalism, the way it is shaped, the bent rules that enable some and disparage others that sometimes doesn't take into some of uh, uh, take, uh, affect the, some you, of the you, a, acute contributions yeah. race gender how people are bought up where they come from mm-hmm. and that blind spot does start to show a little bit even in this race particularly as we see the outcome throughout the south uh, from, yes well yesterday. i mean
1: that uh, and and we should point out bernie sanders played a a role in your campaign when yes. you ran for governor and you were completely discounted Off by the <laughs> by the pundits who who uh, are reliably wrong yeah but I say that as now having a pundit, joined the pundit being class. Reliant, so I'm a self, right? I'm a flagellating pundit. Right. But, uh, you're more spot on than most. Though. <laughs> but so you know him very yeah. well. He he has not done appreciably better with African American voters this campaign than he did last campaign, and that's what defeated him last yeah, campaign. He did why hasn't he made any progress? Yeah, And and can he change? I mean, is he capable? Does he have the emotional range that is necessary? Because, you know, he's basically been saying the same things for about half a century.
0: No, he's been consistent a very, very long time. And I will tell you, I mean, I was so thankful of his willingness to get involved in my race during a primary where – I had raised and spent $6 million to my opponents who raised and spent $96 million in the primary. No one was thinking we could come yeah. through this thing, right? Big
1: spenders are taking a beating these uh, days. Oh, my God. Heck, yeah. <laughs> um, and getting rich in the process, by the way. But
0: anyway, he came in at an important point for me, and he didn't have to do it. I endorsed and campaigned hard for Hillary Clinton uh, everywhere I could uh, in 2016 to see her elected president. And so the fact that, you know, he has surveyed that field, and, and, and despite of the fact that I was not with him, uh, decided to weigh into to, to my race. What I know happened at that point is we would have these events. I saw more white men showing up at rallies and events for me than had ever uh, given me the time of day uh, prior to that point. Um, there was a part of- Do you think because of Bernie? For sure. Uh-huh. His appeal, his attraction- Interesting with further, much further beyond what mine did for those communities. And, 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 acts, we can see this through some of the exit polling. I mean, you got, you got, you know, high school degreed and, 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 you know, high school graduate white men who gravitated to him in Nevada. Yeah, pretty yeah. pretty I mean one of the numbers. things that
1: failed him yesterday was Biden fought him at least to a draw on among that. these non college right. uh white voters. That's and right. uh that was new.
0: Yeah, no, it, and I mean I, you know what, what you that, that
1: that was Biden paying off on what was supposed to be the promise of his campaign, which is this was a cohort that he could relate to. Completely. And and I will
0: tell you, I think people started to and I heard it from folks as I talked to them. They did start to try to look at Sanders a little bit differently uh, two weeks a week or so ago when it looked like he was sort of indefetigable. I mean mm-hmm. uh, coming out of Nevada getting practically half the vote and and, and one of the more diverse the first diverse state yeah. of this primary process, people started to have to process oh, there was what a, there this was a
1: full I mean I actually think you know you look at these things hindsight is twenty yeah. 20, twenty you look back at Nevada. And which may have been a false positive, by the way, because of the unique nature, the nature of the of caucuses it, the, the there. The combination but of both caucuses and the primary. But the full-blown panic that Nevada caused among people who have concerns about Bernie Sanders as nominee, I think hastened this kind of coalescence around Biden. I agree. Because all of a sudden, the reality of Bernie Sanders' nomination became very, very clear to people. Yeah. And uh, I think that caused some very quick calculations. Another element that came together here. So,
0: Could I also yeah, just say on that note, I, I had conversations with... With friends who were not supporters of, of of Bernie, certainly were not considering him. And then after Nevada started to say, OK, maybe I'm missing something and wanted to look more closely under the hood. And I think what turned them completely off is it didn't seem like the Sanders campaign. And I would, I would not just say the candidate to include the candidate, but his surrogates underneath and then everything that happened, they weren't gracious and winning um it was there was a sense that it was like we can do this and we can take on everybody else and we can do it by ourselves well generally what you do when you're winning one when you're winning you have the ability to be magnanimous you don't actually have to be mean to people you can be nice and try to (laughs) welcome them into what it is that you're building that's the luxury of it and that didn't happen and it was a total turnoff to a whole slew of people who were like and i tweeted about that i said, look. Dear presidential candidates and campaign supporters, you cannot get there without us. And the response was, you know, you can't, y'all can't win without us. And I was thinking, I haven't staked out a position. I haven't endorsed a candidate. I'm saying very broadly to everybody, this nasty, let's tear each other down, that's not going to get you where you want to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, when the predicate of your campaign is that you're challenging the establishment, the establishment is the enemy, and you're going to- you're coming to negotiate the terms of surrender. That is a pervasive attitude throughout. And listening to Bernie Sanders last night, I think foreshadows a difficult few months ahead because he just backed up the truck and dumped everything so you can expect he's he's up today with an ad attacking Biden on social security, Iraq, he mentioned Biden's vote for the war in Iraq, trade obviously yeah. is going to yeah. be a big part of it. The fact that he's getting help from billionaires which will be accentuated by the fact that Michael Bloomberg enlisted in his campaign today. Yeah. The thing that may be different though and and this won't solve your angst about this. I don't think that it's likely that the Biden campaign will as passive as the Clinton campaign was in dealing with Bernie mm-hmm. this time. And Bernie again, Sanders again. has his own. I thought in the last debate uh, when he when Biden pressed him on his votes on guns, for example, he looked deeply uncomfortable Very about it. And so. he said, well, we all have bad votes. You have bad votes on trade. Yeah,
0: that that wasn't sufficient for that debate. And I will tell you, his issue back again on Cuba yes. was not— we should talk about tri- that. It was a tripling down, right? Mm-hmm. There was the interview— then there was the day-after response, again, a doubling down. And then there was the debate, and the answer just didn't seem to get any better. I I raised my voice on that one, too. And, again, I've not endorsed any candidate, but there are a lot of us who are working overtime in Florida. to keep Yes, for, I Florida wanted to candidates. ask about
1: Florida, which, by the way, votes in March 17th, so yep. – uh, that primary is coming up and it's going to probably be a pretty important determinant of how this all turns of out. Sure. He, just to set it up yeah. here, we should point out what you're talking about. He did an interview with Anderson Cooper, right. our colleague, uh, on 60 Minutes. Yeah. And Anderson asked him about his past comments about Cuba that left some ambiguity about where he, he stood. And, and, and Sanders began by praising uh, the Castro regime for the things they've done and they did on uh, literacy and on on health care. And then sort of as an afterthought appended, of course, you know, we don't uh, approve of their repressive uh, tactics. And it does speak to his kind of romanticism about these sort of old – liberation movements, but in Florida, where you have all these expats from uh, Cuba, and by the way, from Venezuela as well, that must have landed very badly. It landed so badly that you had every
0: major Democrat, uh, state legislator, state senator, various members of the congressional delegation, the Florida Democratic Party itself, I made my comments on it where there was universal rebuke of that. I mean, I go, so I grew up in Miami and Miami when I was, I mean, you went to school. It was basically black people and Cubans uh, and the part of Miami where I lived. My classmates could recount for me at the level of detail as if their uh, abuela or abuela were were telling them would talk to me about what it meant to live, try to uh, survive and then escape Under the Castro regime. This is how deep and personally since this was for so many of them. Um, I got my own experience with this, even as a candidate in the race for governor of the state of Florida. You almost Florida is one of those states where. International politics matters about as much as the domestic does. If if you don't open a conversation in Doral, Florida, yes. talking to Venezuelans about the fact that Guardo ought to be the yes. rightfully elected Democratic president, yes. and, and, and 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 that Maduro has to go, they can't hear you on health care. And yeah. these are issues in which they agree with us on, right? But they yeah. can't hear you on that until you see them first there. And so while those comments may have felt contained to Cuba. Um, in a South Florida, you know, in a Central Florida where you've got Venezuelans and Colombians, um, um, uh, Cubans and, and so many others who have been forced from the homelands uh, that they love under these authoritarian regimes. Uh, 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 this struck a different kind of nerve. And the way I tried to relate it to a Sanders surrogate, uh, when I did finally get on the phone with somebody uh, to just express my thoughts on it, because I felt kind of because you couldn't get him. anybody. Well, I mean, I, basically, it was just sort of when I criticized that statement their Twitter sphere just from surrogates, major okay. surrogates on down, kind of came against me. That happens. It's politics. What offended me was is I'm probably the closest poll you've got in Florida, the most immediate past Democratic nominee for governor, and you campaigned there. Why not call, reach out, and be curious about what was the nerve here? And so why I said is, right. look, you, you can't talk to me about – uh, how great the roads and hotels were and apartheid South Africa at the same time uh um as as not acknowledging um the great horrors that took place there. they should not be collated uh, located in the in the same sentence. Don't tell me how good of a father and how low the crime rate was for Bull Connor when he was beaten over black people's heads and turning dogs and water hoses on them that that is unacceptable to me, and so you want to talk about literacy go to a Scandinavian country and point out an example. But this is not where you want to co-locate that because it is a a complete dismissal of the pain. And if you don't get that, um, then you're going to have a very, very difficult time competing in the state of Florida, not just with Cubans, uh, but quite frankly, the the, the diversity of the Latin American community represented in, in, in the state of Florida. And I felt like they still hadn't really gotten it and that's going to be problematic as we move forward florida will vote on march 17th and my uh, my guess is it will likely be a biden runaway um, uh, they already had great r- relations in the state. Yes. But, but, but those comments will live for a lot of people. One cute, one cu- Colombian, uh, American state senator, Democrat put it this way. She said, listening to Sanders talk about, uh, romanticize or give credit to the Castro regime because of a literacy reading program is like listening to Donald Trump after Charlottesville say that there were good people on both sides. Wow. That's how deep this, this hit in, in those communities. Yeah.
1: And it's, it's particularly, uh, dangerous for Sanders because he was counting on he's counts on Hispanic communities. And we should say communities because that's very diverse. It is diverse, (laughs) but he may not get that uh, benefit when he gets down to Florida. Last thing on this. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about you and that you got a great deal of notoriety for is your ability to inspire mm. and to appeal to a sense of idealism in people. Many of the issues you ran on were issues that Bernie Sanders is running on for sure. Medicare for All and various others. Are you concerned, not about Bernie Sanders, but I see all these young idealistic kids who yeah. are following him, who believe deeply, not, not so much in him, although they do believe in him. Yeah. But in the causes that he is advocating, they feel a sense of urgency, For sure. urgency about climate change, for urgency sure. about social injustice, urgency about inequality, urgency about the absence of uh, health care right. for too many Americans and the cost of it for all Americans. It strikes me that if this is handled wrong by Biden in his right. campaign, right. that you're not just dismissing Bernie Sanders. That's right but a a young generation that is deeply concerned and sees Biden as part of an establishment that is incremental in its approach and comfortable with a status quo with which they are uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, no, I I tell you, the impatience that this generation feels about the moment that we are in, they have made the determination— That of the candidates on the field, that Bernie Sanders was best suited for this moment, that he uh, embodied the, um, the level of angst that they feel and are feeling every single day, that when they hear a politician, and I know it's debated what the context was, But basically say nothing's going to change. That is a complete their hair is on fire at that point because they're thinking, how in the hell can you tell me nothing is going to change? And I'm about to walk across this stage in a few months, weeks, uh, latent. You know, for years, uh, I don't see an end to when I'm going to be able to uh, break free of college debt. Um, I don't have a belief that there is going to be a job out there that meets my talent that will allow me to create a middle class or an upper class household and do well for myself and for my family. You don't you don't get the urgency of what it means to be terrified of getting sick because of what that costs to the family, what that costs to not just those in your household, but the ones you also have to take care of outside of your household. It's a. Very complex picture underneath here. And my caution to Biden, because I want whoever the Democratic nominee is to be better and to be best suited. You may get through a primary and this applies to both campaigns. What got you through a primary will not get you to the White House. Um, this has to be the law of addition. You, you you bring the folks that you got, but then you've got to figure out a way to bring more in. And if there was a weakness on where uh, the the Biden campaign, I believe, needs to bring more in is I believe he's got to embody a much more inspirational, um, message that young people see themselves in and can rally behind. Messages is to say we're going to get a return to the status quo and we just want normalcy and we need decency again. All great things and we all want that. But when the house is on fire, don't bring me the water hose. Yeah. Uh, bring, you know, Bring yeah. me the entire water
1: brigade. Well, I do think there's a bridge between this notion of decency and empathy sure. and humanity and the concerns of these young people. And uh, the question is, can he build it? Can he build it? And uh, we'll see. I I I don't know how this is all going to turn out. Yeah. None of the, us. the one lesson that I've learned over time is humility and predictions. And anyone who hasn't just got another one yesterday, the people who were calling Joe Biden dead two weeks ago are calling Bernie Sanders dead today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this, this is going to go on for There'll be time. rises
0: and falls and inflections all the way through. And part
1: of it is because they're both human beings yep. and uh, their ability to adapt and adjust to, to lift their game yep. is all going to be part of the equation. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Let's talk about your story, though. I was excited to sit down with you because it is such a great story. You mentioned you were born in Miami. Yeah. Your dad was a construction worker. Yeah. Construction work is a in-and-out kind of thing. It, it is. He was not a part of a union. He worked for a guy named Rick, and Rick would pick him up on days where they had odd work to do. Peace work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he would do other odd sell Yep. Saturday
0: mornings my dad would uh he take his pickup truck uh, take us down to the corner. We'd unpack it. It'd have watermelons and grapefruits, and you know, you this is the stuff you could grow on trees or easily go down the homestead and pick up, you know, the roughage or the leftovers for some of the farm workers. And he sell it on the street corner on Saturday. He would sell flowers to bereaved families in the open, you know, field across from the cemetery. I remember those um, experiences so well from my dad and my mother. You know, was a school bus driver, but uh, Florida, when it got rid of summer school, um, she became a presser in the dry cleaners. So she, I mean, in the hot heat, uh, these things would be saunas. My mother, uh, sweating her, you know, tail off with these big machines, um, pressing clothes every day. And as one of seven kids, because yeah. we were not a small family, right. Um, all boys and Whoa. one girl. My goodness, <laughs> your poor mom. She, she was persistent. Her baby girl was the last one. <laughs> <laughs> and then it came to an end. Um, like, I have to tell you, parenthetically, I'm very happy she came because she's the one that reminds us of everybody's birthdays. <laughs> Who's sick? Who needs to go to the doctor? Uh, is It all falls on my sister. But, you know, it just, it, I had an incredible experience, you know, growing up in, in, in Miami for a period of time. Um, obviously rough moments as well. Um, I your, this, your dad was a struggle with alcoholism absolutely struggled with alcoholism um, um, when, when, when we were young um, all four of my older brothers had criminal background records selling weed. Um, All of it began. It was very funny because uh, my brother and I were talking about this the other day. This was my second oldest who, who got into trouble. You know, it all started when they used to send us to school. He would parse out Snickers bars and Twix bars and Skittles. And he'd give me a, a load of about $20 worth of material and tell me that's what I had. And I'd have to sell that. So at the bus stop. I'd be selling Snickers bars uh, to folks. And obviously, that evolved as times got more difficult in the household, and my older brothers felt like they had some responsibility to help take care of some things. Um,
1: And some of them went to prison for Oh, yeah.
0: I had a brother who went to prison, um, uh, moving drugs across the Florida-Georgia border. And, and, And if I have to tell that story completely, I would have to add, That, you know, as the first of my siblings to graduate from high school and I'm the fifth of them and the first to graduate from college, it was that very same brother who came with me to Tallahassee, took me to Target and outfitted my freshman dorm room Mm. with covers and a refrigerator and a microwave. Um, and so, the fullness of my story wouldn 't be possible without also recognizing how all of this was interconnected and I know how quickly many of us draw judgments about people who sell drugs or you know here or there um, uh, make really bad decisions um, but I will tell you I think for a lot of these people, they see it as a as a means to an end, and that it 's justified because at the other end maybe you 're helping to make it a little bit different or better for somebody else and um, I will tell you i I am I am having been the first to graduate from high school and college and have my little brother and my little sister do the same thing. You can't tell anybody in our household we don't know what it means to see intergenerational poverty disrupted, you know, thanks to that kind of care, love, um, um, and you know, frankly just making a way.
1: Yeah, your dad was uh kind of an intermittent presence, I guess. Oh yeah.
0: Well, I so I have to tell you, my mother Growing up as a child my mother did most of the formal working where if she wasn't driving bus on the weekend wasn't pressing clothes when she was driving she was the bus by the way
1: you, she'd have to start at four in the morning oh, she, yeah she'd take your younger siblings and they would have to sleep on the bus until it was time to until go Until it was school. time to
0: go and then she dropped them off at a city bus stop. Where they take the city bus because we used, I guess I can say this now, we're past any statute of limitations. (laughs) But my mother wanted them to go to a good school so we would use my grandparents' address in Gainesville. And so her address meant that they didn't qualify for the regular bus system. Uh So we'd have to figure it out. It would be akin to a parent having to drive their kid to school, except for us. It was riding with my mama until, you know, it was uh, early enough or late enough in the morning that they'd go to a regular bus stop and then go on to school.
1: I feel like uh, she'd get absolution for that. You know? <laughs> I hope so. For that pe- for that, <laughs> I think that offense. hustle's still going, unfortunately, at yeah. American public schools. And how did you escape some of this? Because yeah. you you didn't go the route of your, yeah. your brothers. Yeah. In fact, you gravitated to you were always the kind of student leader and uh, from a very early age.
0: I will tell you, my grandmother, Ella Baker Jackson, was probably the biggest impact on me in that regard. My grandmother snatched me up and had me in church Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, Friday night, what it felt like all night. Sunday was an all day affair and she just grabbed a hold of me, very different than um, how it was done with my older siblings. And so I grew up, you know, in and and that kind of a you know structured religious environment. At the same time, you know what was going on.
1: Um, you but in our she own she, she gave you that special attention for for More sure. than your more for, than your brothers.
0: For sure. Well, they didn't take a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. For me, you may find this you know crazy, but um, I remember growing up, my dad used to say, if I stayed out of trouble, I could go to the military. Mm-hmm. And then this little known show called The Different World came on Thursday nights, 9 o'clock p.m. And it was Hillman the College experience of black students at an HBCU, Hillman College. And when I saw Hillman College and Jalisa and Dwayne Wayne and Whitley Gilbert, I was like, I'm going to Hillman. And it just stuck in my head. I got more serious about my academics than I ever had before. I had a teacher, Miss Alexandria, who told me. And the seventh grade, she says, Andrew, you are too bright. You have. I'm. I'm going to recommend you for honors courses. And I kept saying no. All my friends were not in them. I was like, I'm good. I'm good. She persisted.
1: I resisted. Well, let me ask you won. about that. Was yeah. is that because you didn't want to be different than your friends? Yeah,
0: I mean, I didn't want to be separated from my friends. I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, these were the people who I were, the,
1: were in the neighborhood with that I knew. Was there a stigma attached to going into those classes? I mean,
0: it, to a lesser degree, I know that that's kind of a, a, a theme. They didn't chastise uh-huh. me necessarily. You just, we just wanted, to wanted be the with fellowship. Them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We wanted the fellowship, and when I got into the honors course, I was terrified. I was one of three black kids, Um, and I remember one of three black kids because those same other two are like my friends to this day. Uh Um, We grew up through that experience, and so um, thankful for a teacher who you know picked me out. But it could have gone the other way.
1: Yeah, there's so many stories like that. There's a lot of politics around education, around around unions. Around, sure. But at the end of the day, everyone who has success in life can point to a teacher Absolutely. who made some formative difference Absolutely. in their lives. And particularly if you don't have great opportunities, it becomes all the more important. And, and especially when you are so limited in your worldview. I mean, it
0: wasn't that I had a friend that I could touch and feel who had gone to university. My touching and feeling was Thursday night through the television screen. Yeah. And that was enough to motivate me to say, oh, that's why I want to go. That's what I want to do. And thought that I was going there all the way up until I had to send my SAT scores off and Hillman was not on the list of schools. <laughs> you could send your scores. I, of
1: course, in my It's a good thing case, that whereas Hillman College wasn't on the SAT. Oh uh, Well, I wish that exactly because I would have gotten that one wrong.
0: Uh, my guidance counselor had the heartiest laugh at me when I took the form. I was like, I got a defective sheet. Like,
1: Hillman's not on here. And
0: took her a while to figure out what I was talking about.
1: Was like, yeah, let me let me ask you this. one question and then I want to go yeah. on to your, your university yeah, experience. Yeah. Just back on your growing up experience, your brothers, you're being counseled to stay out of trouble by your dad and so on. You saw a lot of interaction with the criminal justice system, yeah, sure. with the police and so on. Later, as a mayor, you actually were in charge of a yeah. police force. What are the lessons that you drew as a child that you brought with you? And what were the lessons you learned as a mayor? Yeah about the tension between wanting to keep communities safe yep. and respecting people's civil liberties. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, I I would tell you, my my parents, my
0: grandparents wanted the neighborhood to be as safe as anybody else in any wealthy neighborhood wanted it. I mean, they would – my grandmother, I recall very well, her on the police when she thought there was some activity going down that she – you know, that you needed to be called. So I was – I've always seen the dichotomy of of you know the desire for communities to be safe but I've also seen the harassment that occurred that was un, in my opinion provoked other than a bunch of guys just standing around in a circle and whether they were playing crabs throwing you know dice on the floor or maybe it was something more def- nefarious going on it felt like a pretty constant state of harassment and so the and over, you you got the talk right the talk oh come on yes um, I mean it, you got very clear instructions about how you were supposed to act and I remember it from an early early when age. when you encountered police oh, for sure yeah for sure I mean I was always terrified I mean I I said this when you know we were talking I had to go back to the presidential but when I was sort of internalizing the idea of Seven hundred thousand black and brown boys being thrown up against the wall. Stop and frisk. In the course in of a year, uh, stop and frisk. It took me back to the first time I ever got pulled over uh, for not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign, and the fact that I didn't get a citation, I wasn't taken out of the car, nothing abusive happened to me. This wasn't in the age of watching these videos on you know YouTube or whatever. And even though after I got released to go. I could only drive like a block or two and I had to pull away because I couldn't stop shaking. Right. You never, ever, 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 ever forget what that experience is like. And mm-hmm. so to to cause that kind of trauma and to not fully reckon with what you're doing um, really bothers me. And so as a mayor, I was conscious of that. I tried to move our police force in the direction of conscious um, of, of restorative justice. Um, where we would take young, you know, nonviolent offender uh, uh, kids under the age of 18. If it was a nonviolent first time offense, it wasn't adjudicated before a judge in a court of law. We moved you through a community panel. I was proud to have, you know, resurrected this program in my city. You go before Miss Jackson, Miss Jefferson, the victim, maybe the victim's family. And you would learn how what you did impacted us, the community. And we saw amazing successes out of that right but that wasn't always welcomed in the process everybody didn't get into policing for that reason but so i it was a healthy balance and it's one that i think we've got to strike even to today is it possible to criticize bad behavior without being you know critical of every law enforcement officer and i i hate the fact that any criticism led uh, you know levered seems to be internalized as an attack on the profession when that's not it. you got bad apples. you got bad players in every field and form, and it behooves all of us to remove them because they make it less safe for everybody when they're allowed to persist
1: in those systems. You went to Florida A&M. Yeah. And almost immediately when you got there, you got involved in student government. You became a student leader. What drew you to that? I swore off a student government. I mean, that was the one thing that I told myself
0: because I'd done it through high school. I was a student, you know, it was president, class presidents, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, this is just going to be about my academics. And lo and behold, Jeb Bush gets elected governor of the state of Florida. And one of his first initiatives is to end affirmative action in all higher education and all state contracting. So it was less my desire to want to get back involved in politics again and more a reaction to like our survival. This was an attack on our community and probably similar to maybe what the students at Howard feel in the nation's capital In Tallahassee. We are the single HBCU that exists there and it is the capital of the state. And so when there was an offense being done against black people, whether it was college students or just regular black folks in the state, people look to us at FAMU to be the conscience and the immediate response. So I, I mean, there. My freshman year was rife with marching down to the state capitol, sitting in, writing demands, you know, that kind of civic participation and activism. And so it was less a desire and more the situation made it necessary. And I would, I would go on, you know, to, to to continue to protest from that to the 2000 presidential elections, which went down, you know, while I was a student at Florida a and M, I I was student body president when nine eleven happened and yeah. had to try to leave Two thousand. Uh, we government. should,
1: for those who don't remember, that was ground zero in That's 2000, right. 537 votes, I votes think, Al Gore. made the difference in the presidential race for George W. Bush, and it went on for For months, and it involved uh, irregularities at polling places. That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: So, and oddly enough, fast forward, my wife ended up giving testimony to a video that was shown at the convention in 2004 in Boston when Barack Obama spoke. um, Because the DNC showed a video of folks who had issues with voting. Uh, In Florida, they were highlighting voter disenfranchisement. My wife was one of those people um, at the time we weren't dating and she didn't really like me even as a student. So, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but I remember her image and her testimony because she went to vote, was a registered, duly registered voter and was turned away at the polls. Um, and, and she gave that testimony to, uh, to the DNC. But it, it for me, um, David, it really felt like an outflow of just what we were encountering. I mean, the, the challenges felt so great. It just required us as students to rise to that occasion. Um, and ultimately, I made the decision to run for city council because we went down and protested a law, a local ordinance, which said no more than three students could live in a neighborhood if they were unrelated. Um, and I thought it was a student you know, discriminatory thing. We went, we rallied, we, pro- we went and protested. And when we finished, the city councilwoman, one of them in particular, said, you know, students are like house guests. Uh, we love to see you come, but we can't wait to see you go. And (sighs) laughter broke out down the dais. And of
1: course, we were mortified. And I, walking out of there, I was like, okay, you
0: know what? We'll just take them on.
1: This reminds (laughs) me, I had a client years ago, John Street, who was the mayor of Philadelphia. And the way he got into politics was he was leading a housing protest. Mm. And uh, one of the Members of the city council there told him as he was being let out by the police, "You want to talk to me? You run for office." Uh, so he ran against the person and and got elected to yep. the <laughs> got elected to the city council. I know you had a friend in uh, high school whose mother was uh, yep. a legislator, so you got sort of I ushered into her over, electoral politics yep. that, through that relationship. He was the
0: other of the three black students he was uh the second. Uh-huh. <laughs> his yeah. mother was a member of the, the uh, state legislature first black mayor of Gainesville Florida um, female black female mayor of Gainesville Florida and you know I didn't have a total orientation of it because this was going through high school but I knew my friend's mama was running and she needed people to knock on doors and put up signs and so we did that but I I do credit her with introducing me to politics um at that level and also citizen engagement and it, it you know that that experience meant the world to me i you know cynthia chestnut is her name yes retired these days but um a force to, a to be mentor with a mentor and a and a and a tour to S- a tour force so
1: 23 years old you get elected to the uh, city commission yep. in tallahassee how were you received when you <laughs> arrived well, the community was
0: extremely supportive, and then I got to the council, and, and I love all these folks to this day, but I remember we would be in, um, you know, debate or, or, if you would, conversation, and motions would need to be made, and I would offer up what I thought was like a way forward, and there would be no second. I mean, it was like chirp, you know, nothing couple minutes later, a colleague would say what I thought was practically the same thing. And it's a second, oh, this is the greatest idea, you know, we'd ever heard. I was 23. I was the youngest person. Closest to me was 50 or so. Yeah. Um. um, um I mean, they were making me earn my stripes. And I remembered it caused me to recess a little bit in my own presence on council. And I was visiting a church. And I'll never forget this elderly black woman came you were, to You were me. pretty quiet for
1: a while. I was.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and she said, you know, I watch— those meetings every Wednesday I go home and I make sure I watch you every Wednesday. And she said, I'm so disappointed in you. And I'm like, what, (laughs) what did I do? That wasn't the normal reaction people gave to me at the time. And she said, I get up there waiting for you to say something and, uh, and you don't say anything. And I don't know what I felt, but it stirred in me and it was almost like somebody just turning on a light switch. Um, I never got that complaint again. I mean, her point to me was we knew you were young when we put you there. Um, but I thought you had something to say and I knew you had something to do. Um, and I was waiting for validation from my four colleagues across the panel and I had all the validation I needed. I was the youngest person elected. I got elected with 57% of the vote with the least amount of money of any candidate in the race. And whether my experience matched my colleagues or not, it was somebody's lived experience in our community. And I took it upon myself to make sure I gave voice to that as much and as often as I could.
1: And you served for 10 years. Yeah,
0: I served for 12 as a city councilman and then four as mayor, 16 years in total. Oh,
1: 16. So 12 years on the council. What are the things that you did that you remember most fondly i mean i'm 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 extremely proud, and I will tell you I
0: ran into my set's attention here um at different points because you know most people just wanted us to fix potholes and make sure you know the uh, you, you know bike lanes were paved right and that kind of thing, and I always saw the position of city council as The power of that position was our ability to convene people around ideas. And one of the first challenges that I saw was that our young people during the summer, we did not have a very vibrant summer program for young kids, certainly not ones for free. So I started a summer internship program um, in the city where we would do paid internships, but not just in parks and Rec. Um, We put them in finance and in auditing Mm. and in the legal offices. Uh, We put them in uh, the city summer drama program. I wanted these young people because I got that experience. I'll never forget it when I was in high school in Gainesville working for the summer um, Thomas Center, which was a local museum. It was the most exposure that I had ever gotten to arts and culture ever in my life. I was never the same from it. And, 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 And it was different because I got plucked out to do that. Most of the other young kids were at the Parks and Rec. They were lifeguards that they were picking up you know, trash in the city parks. I was in an office at the Thomas Center helping to put together a Midsummer Night's Dream and advertising for it and that kind of thing. And so to me, it felt very important that particularly for these kids that we were working with, that we gave them an ex- a, 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 the experience and the exposure to the fact that you don't have to necessarily go up to do blue collar work. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a whole world of professions and opportunities out there for you. So let's go pursue it.
1: And you made education a kind of hallmark of your
0: race for mayor, <laughs> which is uh, where we ran up, up against tension with like school board members. You mm-hmm. know, we didn't have autonomy over education. That yeah. was a whole de- different You board. hear mayors
1: all over the country complain about that. I
0: know, but, but we, we have to deal with the effects of it, right? If mm-hmm. our kids aren't being educated, they're being pushed mm-hmm. out of the system. Where do they show up? They show up on the roads. We didn't have truancy problems, then they get deeper and deeper into the criminal justice system, and that becomes a bigger burden to society. So uh, I looked at, I began with early childhood education. I stumbled across the Abesidarian study, which is a 40-year-long longitudinal study around early childhood education and early investments being the best predicator of a person's future life trajectory. So if you get access to early learning, 90% of brain development taking place between the ages of zero and five, the, these kids are literally sponges. And they're showing up, we're, we're treating them or have been treating them like throwaway years. Mm-hmm. Then they get to kindergarten and they have no no competency for the words that are being spoken. By the time they get to third grade, they're further behind. And so- I had to try. I wanted to use the power to convene as a mayor to bring the business community, the education community, the city, the large employers and say, what are we doing to ensure that? we're creating family-friendly environments. And let us incentivize you to do that, which means if your employee needs to go to the school to have lunch with their child that day as a way of pouring into them and letting them know that somebody cares, then give them that time off. And if you do, you go up in the ranking for family-friendliness. Um, if you have paid leave, paid sick leave in your workplace, then we're going to celebrate you as a community um, um, and incentivize and you to go And how much success did you have? It, 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 it was incredible. My, my one regret is, is as the program was coming to its greatest maturation, I ended up you know, moving uh, toward running for, uh, for governor. I'm proud to say that the program still exists. We have a voluntary system where early childhood centers are being voluntarily rated on the quality of what happens there. Because in my state, we actually don't rate these folks off quality. Is it healthy? Does the kid, you know, when you go to pick them up, show up alive? Uh, you're good. Well, that's not good enough. If these are throwaway years and the only marker that parents are getting is how much something costs, uh, if uh, most of them are priced out of what they would think are the good centers. And so we had to do something about that.
1: I know you also uh, upped Tallahassee's game in terms of technology. Yeah. Became, yeah. Uh, Thanks uh, to the Obama administration, actually. A uh, uh, plug to
0: y'all. We, um, um, you know, we became a tech hire city, uh, under the, um, Obama administration's efforts to get cities to think about the future of work. And we leaned into that challenge. We emphasized um, um, uh, the startup community and and building a real startup culture. But it also required that our kids in middle and high school, where the gap was greatest when it came to access to Internet and to computers. And so I, you know, went into the one publicly ranked F school in our city. And I said, we got Dell computers and I got Comcast cable to provide uh, a four-year warranty computer for the time that they would mature themselves um, um, through ele- uh, through middle school and free Internet access for every one of those families so that they could continue, continue the learning day mm-hmm. after their kids came home. I'll tell you, actually, I didn't think this would be a problem. The f- biggest problem we ran into is when I had the first weekend for parents to come and pick up the computers, um, something like seven or eight families of a couple of hundred kids showed up. And I didn't all the way understand it. But what we came to learn is that the parents thought it was a trap because for many of them, their cable had been cut off because they couldn't pay the cable bill. And they thought that this was a ploy to get them uh, to the school so that they could that people could collect on it. It's just that we we make a lot of assumptions a while on why people don't participate, why poor parents don't show up, that they don't care about their kids, yeah. and nobody ever bothers to pull back the layers, the multitude of layers yeah. as to why that yeah. might be. It was one of my first introductions as to why you know some of these things
1: never go you know get solved. I know you also uh, brought solar farm in yeah. to uh, promote solar energy. I have to ask you this. Yeah. There were also controversies when you were mayor. Yeah. There was an FBI investigation. Yeah. A friend of yours from college introduced you to a couple of people who purported to be his lobbyists.
0: Friends. Well, really, his friends, not lobbyists.
1: <laughs> I see. And they paid for a trip to New York. Nope, I paid for a trip to New York. I see.
0: They, however, invited me to um, uh, to see a play, Hamilton. Yes. Hamilton, which is still one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a great play. Um, this was my second time seeing it. I should have. Said no. One was enough. Yeah. One one, one would have been enough. Um, But 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 again, not thinking anything untoward here, thought these were, you know, friends who had gotten to know me over the course of a year and only to later find that they were trying to seek out public corruption uh, and municipal governments around the country. And my biggest regret there is. Um, that I think I didn't at that time demonstrate the discernment to assume that everyone doesn't have good intentions for
1: you. Also took a trip to Costa Rica with him. Yeah, which
0: unfortunately never got bared out. But that was a trip completely paid for by my wife, myself. Every couple pay their own. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately, the Ethics Commission tried to bring 21 offenses against me. And ultimately, delved them all
1: down to one because they could not prove. And you any paid, a, of it. Paid, a and I paid a fine, paid a fine for it. But those things became quite pronounced. Well, no, because you race. got nominated. You won this, as we mentioned earlier, this extraordinary uh, primary victory for governor. Yeah. And you were the Democrat nominee for governor, and this became a major focus of the campaign against you. Yeah, for
0: sure. And I will tell you, we did our own focus grouping on this as well what was what was funny and also depressing is that when people we played this out for voters in these focus groups um to a person they said well they're all corrupt they all do You know, those things, which I found extraordinary because I had no idea. That is more prevalent in this
1: era. I mean, that is, you know, they they all do it. This is one of the defenses that you hear for President Trump. For President Trump, which I I, I resent. I I don't
0: believe that to be true. And I don't believe that to have been true in my case. But that's what voters concluded. And what I felt actually had the biggest impediment on our race was the charge of socialism. And it was one that I think caused me to underperform Miami-Dade in particular, we underperformed Barack Obama by 16 points amongst the Hispanic you, community. This
1: is really interesting. I mean, because as we mentioned earlier, your platform was not unlike Bernie no. Sanders' platform, and that was the epithet, as if, it were, that they hung on you, and it was effective all the way through. I mean, I be I mean, most of these people probably couldn't have
0: defo- you know uh, uh, um, uh, you know defined what socialism was, but the Republicans did a very very effective job at calling me a socialist. I had no real understanding of the impact that that would have had. I mean, I'm a capitalist. I I led a mayor where, I mean, a a city at the time, my city was the fastest growing economy in the state of Florida per capita. As a mayor, I leveraged incentive projects and programs to bring businesses to market. Nothing could be further from the truth. I wasn't talking about wholesale takeovers of anything. Mm -hmm. But it was an effective strategy that they ran to the hilt Mostly in Miami-Dade County, yeah, and the residual effect was: is it cut our uh, and was this a, because
1: there. of the expat community and so on? Was, was there a particularly strong feeling there very, among very, those who had fled socialists? For uh, sure. Socialist?
0: For sure. I mean, for, the reason it was so potent in those places is that when they heard when they hear the word socialist, they think Ortega and Maduro and Castro, and you, you almost don't even get past and into the conversation. Because people have already, def, you know, decided what they have defined that to be, and the Republicans have already forecast. By the way, it doesn't matter who the nominee is. Now it may have more resonance with some than others, but they've been holding and running ads in Florida on socialism without a clear target. Just that yeah. the Democrats are all socialist. Yeah. Um. And and it's my hope that we have a much better, um, um pushback, uh, to it and really call Donald Trump out for what he for what he is. He uh, he. He is exactly what he's exclaiming us to be. This is a man who is very attractive, the strong man. Uh, he's got more in common with, you know, the authoritarian leaders uh, around the globe than any Democrat uh, has. We detest those folks. And he embraces them, invites them in, asks for their help, you know, uh, in, in, in elections. They In Miami, they call him a cordillo, And he is that. And so we've been running ads basically trying to neutralize the strength of that Name calling that argument by basically calling
1: out Donald Trump for what he is. You're referring to an organization that, that started. you've started. Talk about what the goal of it is. Yeah. And then, and about how you rate the chances of a Democrat carrying Florida because everybody calls Florida a battleground state, yeah. but very few people give Democrats uh, credit for it. Yeah. Uh, you I mean, know, the, the presumption. Yeah.
0: No, it, it's true. I found it interesting after my race. It may have been the. You block
1: lost block. by one point. I lost by point 0.4. Oh, less than a point. Yeah. Yes. So
0: for the last 24 years, Democrats have been losing the race by about a point. We got the closest of any Democrat had in the history and 25 year history uh, of the state uh, of Florida, which was one of the reasons why I was pushed back on this. The progressive thing um, Mm -hmm. that we brought a bunch of people into play, a race that was supposed to get 6.1 million people turning out, uh, had 8.5 million people come out and vote, bringing us close to presidential-level turnout. Um, So what we decided, one of the things that because I was not the expected nominee – Um, there was not a lot of infrastructure present for me after I became the Democratic nominee. We literally had to build from zero. And because Florida's primaries are so late, it doesn't give you a lot of time to, uh, to make that all happen. Um, One of the things that we diagnosed, and I got to give you credit, David, for this. um, You and I had a conversation shortly after the race and you said you had been looking at some numbers and of course you didn't want to say anything to me through the course of the race, but that the, the biggest shutter you had um, and looking at the numbers, was the precipitous decline in Democratic registrations in yeah. Florida since 2008, when right. you all came in and did what you did, and to, g- to help your uh, your listeners understand, when Barack Obama was on the ballot in Florida in 2008, Democrats had a registration of advantage of near 800,000 more right. registered Democrats than Republicans. Fast forward, when I was on the ballot, that uh, 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 that 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 uh, increase had slipped to fewer than 250,000 more registered Democrats, which than is Republicans. a huge difference, huge. Difference, especially when you're talking about a state that is won and lost by one percent. The other thing that happened when Barack Obama was on the ballot in 08, uh, 65 and older white voters were a quarter of the electorate, 25 percent. And my race, they were 31 percent of the total mm-hmm. electorate. Whiter, older, um, not our folks. So we had to we had to balance out uh, quite a bit uh, in in that race to make it right. And so. The first thing we had to determine, again, inspired by some of your feedback, was how do we close some of this or at least create more distance for Democrats in the registration game? So we pulled together, you know, three dozen organizations, grassroots groups around the state, incentivize them and help to raise money and support them to do voter registration. We've already topped now 200,000 registrations. We're turning our attention now to enlisting 500,000 Floridians to request vote by mail ballots at home. Except we're not going after the people who would normally request VBMs. We're going after the folks who are said to be unlikely voters, because our goal is, is that if we can get these folks and chase them for a month to get that ballot turned in, that that's going to be icing on the Mm -hmm. cake. That will be a vote that people don't expect to participate. And so we're right now raising money into Forward Florida, Forward Florida Action, our C4 and our political committee to run ads, but also to do the difficult work of democracy, which is getting out there, registering voters and then turning them out.
1: Let me close with a couple of personal questions. It struck me as I was reading your story that you've had all the success and then you lost this race for governor. And I'm wondering, after having all this success, winning every race you were ever in, uh You know, Except
0: third grade, I, I lost homeroom
1: representative. <laughs> so, but that had to be a little, a little less uh, prodigious a blow than uh, losing a race for governor. Although when you're in third grade, <laughs> yeah, maybe it not felt like the world it did. <laughs> no. no, but how how did yeah. you process that? How hard was it to yeah. deal with coming so close and and losing yeah. and facing? Well, I guess you'd have to call it a failure. Just yeah, for sure.
0: And a failure not 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 just for me, but for. All of the people who were turned on the politics for the first time, who came up to me and gave me testimonies about why it is that they needed Medicaid expanded. I had always said throughout the course of the race that ultimately uh, my concern was not me, the candidate who loses, but the people who lose when we lose these elections. Mm -hmm. And to be very honest with you, I have not all the way processed through it. I've just kept working. Um, Were you um, depressed? My wife thinks I'm clinically depressed. I haven't been clinically (laughs) diagnosed. Uh, And she says that because I do have a challenging time reckoning with what all happened there. I don't all the way understand it, to be very honest with you. Um, But I do understand systemic structures. And I do understand that there are steps in the process that have to be made more leveled in order for a Democrat in the state of Florida to run. And might you do it again? Um, I, 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 I don't think that um, public office, elected office, is done for me by any. I, I don't believe that at all. I do not know what the next step looks like, and so in the meantime, um, in order for that next step to be a reality for me in Florida, at least, I know that we've got to do this registration. We've got to push push back on the. On the, the, the voter uh, disenfranchisement that is so rampant in my state because in Florida, in order to win, as a Democrat, you can't just win. you got to win-win. Um, I'm convinced that we have to take about 100,000 votes off the top based off of various systems that exist that disqualify those votes. Um, and that means that you you, you got to be pretty decisive in your win in order to, to walk away um, um, as the governor or the senator or the whatever if you're a Democrat uh, in Florida. You all Pulled out a mighty race, and it and it didn't happen without a lot of mm-hmm. difficult work and very surgical maneuvering to get the one percent advantage you got out of
1: Florida. Well, Andrew Gillum, we're going to be watching with interest what you do next, and uh, I'm sure you're not done in public life. But I so appreciate you as a oh, colleague my at CNN. Yeah, and uh, look forward to sitting down with you many more times. Look forward to it, brother. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.